and welcome to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Kat Bolton, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Peace Studies at the Croc Institute. I'm also the guest editor of the latest issue of the Croc Institute's Peace Policy Publication, which focuses on the important role youth and young adults play in peacebuilding around the world. This is one of three episodes dedicated to conversations with the authors of each of the Peace Policy articles. I'm Siobhan McAvoy-Levy, Professor of Political Science and Peace and Conflict Studies at Butler University and Director of the Desmond Tutu Peace Lab. I'm here with my co-authors of a recent peace policy piece titled Youth and Sustainable Peace. Cambria Kayat is a senior undergraduate student at Butler University studying peace and conflict studies, economics, international studies, and Spanish. She's a member of the Desmond Tutu Peace Lab in Indianapolis and a researcher in the Youth Peace and Security Research Network. Starting in June, she'll be joining global nonprofit Common Purpose as the project coordinator of the Legacy Initiative, working with young people. Thanks for being here, Cambria. Thanks so much for having me. And also here is Julio Trujillo, a first year children's law fellow at Loyola Law School in Chicago. He graduated from Butler University in 2019 and was the Neighborhood Youth Liaison Intern for the Desmond Tutu Peace Lab, based at the Martin Luther King Community Center in Indianapolis. Welcome, Julio. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have you both here to talk a bit more about the piece that we wrote together. In that piece, we discuss the critical importance of youth being involved in processes of addressing structural violence and building sustainable peace. So, to start with, I wonder if you could both tackle the simple question, why? Why is it so important that youth are involved in peace building processes and in policy making that addresses violence? Julio, do you want to start us off? Sure. So it is almost straightforward when people in the field and when folks that are experienced with this level of work to say that young people need to stay because they're victims and offenders and most of the times they relate to violence, whether, like I said, of their victims or offenders. Mm-hmm. So in that instance, we need their say because they have a unique perspective that a lot of us adults don't have. And we tend to preach that, I feel, well, maybe I'm biased because that's like what I want to read. But what I do see that's almost lacking is when we give them a say, we tend to supervise them and not let them think freely. So. And sure, it's quite important because they have a unique perspective. They are part of that situation. They need a say. And most importantly, they need agency. Right. So the agency, in what sense? Agency to do what? There's so much going through my head. It's just, they need a seat at the table and they need to be comfortable and they need to be valued. They need to feel that what they say isn't nonsense or isn't in an adult-centric view where we as adults consider that silly at times. And that may hinder them from being agents of the, for themselves, being truthful, being transparent, because they may be fearful for what they have to say. So, yeah, there's many ways, but... I just think it's important for the adults to work on our end to listen. Great points. So it's about 
this combination of taking young people seriously and respecting what they have to say, listening even when it might be uncomfortable, listening even when we might disagree, adults allowing themselves to change their minds, which I think is sometimes hard for us. Cambria, why don't you jump in here and address this question about why? Why is it so important to involve youth in peace building processes? Yeah, I think so much of peace building and policymaking is about creating a future that we want to build, creating a more equitable future, a more peaceful future, a future that brings in different voices and perspectives. And yet when we think about future, the people that are going to be inheriting future are young people. They are going to be the ones inheriting this reality that we create through peace building. And so when we leave out their voices, when we don't meaningfully incorporate their voices, when we don't give them, like Julio was saying, the opportunity of, you know, advocacy and activism, we lose out on their perspective and their opinion in building this world that they are about to inherit. And so it's really the matter of giving them a voice at the table that they're already going to be seated at a few years down the line. Yeah, because there's so much knowledge that young people have that is unique to their current situation, right? Whether it's poverty or being evicted or being displaced or punitive school discipline, all that kind of knowledge that is essential for policymakers and for other adults to know about in order to make good policy. Yeah. So it's really a worry about this critical information that's being lost. And if we're going to make structural reforms, you know, learning from young people about what will work and, and how such reforms will be felt by them, right? Because hopefully with youth involvement, won't be so much tainted by this sort of, we've done this before, ism. I'm sure both of you have heard that. You know, we've done this before, so we can't do it now. So one of the big issues that we address in the piece is specifically is about the climate crisis that's facing our world and the ways that young people are inheriting this existential crisis. Can you talk a bit about the ways youth activism is having an impact on this conversation? Cambria. Yeah, absolutely. So I think going back to the idea that youth are going to be inheriting the future That idea is especially relevant when it comes to the climate crisis and environmental degradation because as the climate crisis begins to worsen over time, the brunt of the burden is going to be felt by young people when they inherit this world with even greater negative environmental impact. And so youth have realized this fact and rather than letting that kind of scare them away from stepping up to the table. It is actually, we've seen that it's mobilized young people and young people have been leaders in the climate movement as opposed to kind of sitting back and and allowing fear to rule. We see even in our organization that we all met through the Desmond Tutu Peace Lab that there's the environmental justice cohort, which is working on empowering young people's voices and putting them at the center of the table in order to kind of find these environmental solutions. We see activists like Greta Thunberg or the Zero Hour Movement, which is based in the United States that has ran over the entire country at this point. And of course, we we realize that indigenous youth voices have also been kind of a leader in this this movement. 
Right. Yes. People like Vanessa Nakate from Uganda, right, along with Greta Thunberg and several South African young women have been in these forums, too. So, you know, you're part of these forums, Cambria. You've been part of these high-level UN forums. Do you want to talk a little bit about the YPS agenda and how you see climate activism connecting with the youth peace and security agenda? Yeah. So, When it comes to climate activism, a lot of young people have already started on climate action. There's so many already active youth-led organizations working on climate action. But the problem was that a lot of them didn't necessarily have this platform. And so when YPS came around, the Youth Peace and Security Agenda, what it did was kind of empower young people on the already existing activism and change and civil society organizations that they were working with. And so I think the importance of YPS and climate action is that young people have already been climate action leaders and kind of advocates of the climate movement. And yet they didn't have that support. They didn't have that backing, which is the importance of YPS and that it empowers young people's voices and it encourages the meaningful incorporation of their opinions and their their knowledge. Yeah, so when we think about this youth climate activism, we can see it sort of happening on two interconnected levels, right? There's this high-level policy level where young people are now, it seems, being invited into the conversation through the Youth Peace and Security Agenda or going to the COP26 summit, right, in Glasgow, or inviting themselves to those spaces. And then you also have that layer or level where young people were already active at the grassroots, right? Doing the kind of small scale activism that you talked about that we were doing in Indianapolis around climate change, but also those other movements like the Sunrise Movement, which, you know, young people there are supporting that Green New Deal candidate in Texas, Jessica Cisneros, trying to get her elected right to Congress. Or the Fridays for the Future school strike, climate school strikes, where students in lots of places, I think it was more than 90 countries around the world, striked from school on Fridays. So we're seeing, hopefully, this push from both the grassroots and then at the top level, where young people are getting their their voices heard. So why is this climate issue so important to young people? Uh, I think the climate issue is perhaps one of the most critical issues for young people because of the fact that we are going to be inheriting a world in which the burden, the effect of worsening environmental issues are going to be felt by us. As the climate worsens over time, it's only going to become more difficult, more burdensome. And that's the world that we're going to take on. And I think young people have been some of the first people to recognize that you know, when we think about peace building as an idea, and when we think about climate change and, you know, climate policy and things, those shouldn't be separate ideas. We should address those together because we see that the impact of the climate crisis is a form of conflict. It is a form of of violence against us because of the negative impacts it's going to have on our lives going forward. And so I think young people, like I said, are going to be are some of the key stakeholders when it comes to climate policy and climate action because we are going to be the individuals living in the world that has been created this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. So, Huli, I want to come back to you before we go to the third question because I feel like maybe we didn't talk enough about 
issues of of gun violence and why um, structural violence, poverty and racism in the United States. Because one of the things that we wanted to do with this piece that we were writing was move beyond the idea that peace building is only something that needs to happen over there, right? That the United States isn't a conflict-affected society. And we know that it is a conflict-affected society and that peace building is needed here in the U.S. So what else would you want people to know about the need for peace building in someplace like Chicago where you're working and where you grew up, where both of you grew up? I think it's very important because there's almost two distinctions between American communities. We have those that are privileged and those that are not. And even between those that aren't privileged, there's almost barriers. It's important to have youth in peace-building processes and policymaking because, like I mentioned, they have a unique position and they need a say. And a lot of the projects and the initiatives that are happening now are, like I've mentioned as well, are done by adults, perhaps white American adults, perhaps people that if they are a color, they haven't been in those positions prior, don't have any knowledge of what's going on in those communities. And it reminds me of a book that we've read in your course, Dr. McAvoy-Levy. Excuse me, but I forget the title. I read it completely. It was, if you could help me out with the title, that'd be great. Is it The Politics of Exile by Elizabeth Dauphiné? Yes, yes. And the theme was that we had an individual that was part of the civil war, part of the war going on in that European continent. And there were another individual who, analogous to this present situation, this question that we have, she was a researcher and she was just doing it by book. She was doing her research, asking questions, interviews, and she was in the field. But the main theme of that was that she didn't have a unique perspective of what was truly going on. She wasn't feeling what that man, what the other people in the war were feeling. She was on the field, in the field, she was involved, but she didn't have that, that exhaustive feeling, emotional driven approach. She wasn't there essentially. So that reminds me of the question that you've asked and we're talking about now, because we have, like I've mentioned, white Americans usually, or people that have never been in those experience advocating for these people and trying to speak on behalf of them, but we truly don't know what those people really want because they don't have a seat at the table. And when it comes to gun violence and crime and felonies, et cetera, we need to relay and we need to understand why. And yes, we've never been in that position, so how do we fix that problem? We have them at the table. We give them a seat. We let them talk. We let them offer solutions, recommendations. We let them offer why this is happening and what we can do to fix that situation and that problem. So. In short, when it comes down to the United States, it's so grand, it's beautiful, it's pull yourself up by your bootstraps, essentially. But some people don't have that opportunity, as you can tell, in Chicago, in certain areas of Chicago, in the south side, in the west side, because no one listens to them. No one understands completely what's going on in those communities. And the reason is because they don't have a seat at the table. So when it comes to gun violence, yes, it's true, a lot of young people are committing those gun violent crimes. But it's further than gang violence. There's a reason why they're in those gangs. There's a reason why they decide to go into the gang community rather than pursue education. They have no choice, essentially. So it's very nuanced. It's complicated. And the reason I'm saying this, because I am a 25-year-old law student at Loyola. I don't know what's going on now, and I don't want to speak much about it because 
it might not be thoughtful and it might and that might be exhaustive. So we need them in these calls. We need them to offer solutions. No, it's great. And it reminds me, you know, also that how important it is to bring in the youngest of young people, because even people like you now have aged out of the space where you really understood and were deeply connected, right, with all of the factors that lead to young people being involved in gangs and gun violence. And so we have to continually keep renewing the cohort of young people who are being brought in and invited to the table and respected at the table as having a voice. I also I think it's important too, as you mentioned, that most young people are not involved in violence, that most young people are actually the recipients of violence, right? They're they might be the perpetrators, but they're also the victims in many ways as well. So as you said, it's nuanced, it's complicated. Victim perpetrator are blurred. Most young people are trying to survive structural and cultural violence rather than being involved in direct violence. So let's move on to our, our third and last question, which sort of pulls all these things together, which is what efforts are already underway that can serve as models for the kind of youth-centered peace building that we're talking about here, youth-centered peace building education and pedagogy and activism. Who's doing this well so far in your opinions and what can we learn from those examples? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Well, when it comes to figuring out what types of organizations are really doing well, I think the most effective models believe at their core, that young people are central to sustainable peace building. And what's so special about these types of organizations is that they value the meaningful and authentic centering of youth voices rather than the tokenization of youth voices or incorporating youth for their own benefit, but but really centering them at the table. And I think something we can learn from these youth-led organizations are a lot about the encouragement of youth voices, the equipping of young people, and realizing that youth have the potential to create impact. One organization that honestly was pivotal in the beginning of me getting started with peace building was the Desmond Tutu Peace Lab. And what was so impactful about my participation in this organization was really the way that we were empowered in our ideas and encouraged in our ideas. And young people were never held back or restricted in questioning their potential for impact. Rather, they were, the organization gave a platform, gave wind beneath our wings. And I had the opportunity to use that to support the different ideas I had about environmental justice, peace building, and I think those types of organizations are, are really impactful. Thank you. That's great to hear. Cambria, I'm going to come back to you in a second and ask you a little bit more about the Youth Peace and Security Network, UNOI, that you're involved in, and the journal article you wrote there. And then maybe also you can reflect a little bit on, on your own background as a Palestinian-American and how that shapes the way that you've you know, thought about peace building and youth and peace building. So Julio, who's doing this well, this youth-centered peace building? That's basically it. What are the models that we can, and what can we learn from them? There's one that I vividly remember when I was an undergrad, and that was with the Desmond Tutu Peace Lab. 
and it was PAR, participatory action research. And it's so beautiful how we conducted that qualitative research because I didn't lead it. It was the young people, the people that were impacted in the Butler Tarkington neighborhood. That community is unfortunately disfranchised, some areas of that community. And gun violence, gang violence, and the things that follow. So it was an amazing experience because when we did those interviews, the people that we interviewed, which I just stood back and the young people did it, the three young people that have been impacted and unfortunately continuously are still impacted, they conducted the interviews and they asked the questions. And when they asked the questions, the interviewees were responding with amazing responses and things we can use and implement in policies because they were comfortable in those environments. If I would have gone in there as a Butler University student that they have no knowledge who I was at the time, they weren't going to give me a sincere response to my question. They may have given me a picture of it, a small hint of it, but a thorough investigation that wasn't going to be produced. And the only reason it was produced was because the young people were conducting the research and they knew those people from that community and they trusted them. So with that, actually, too, that led to trust between me and the community because I was with them. And essentially was, since I was with them, they trusted me. So I think that's a beautiful approach, par, participatory action research, when you let these people do the research and you just help and facilitate. Because you get a beautiful image. You really receive almost 100% of what's really going on in that community because they're so honest in terms of qualitative, of course. Mm-hmm. So that's one can, example that I'd love to stress. Can I follow up with that and that your endorsement of participation action research? One of the things that we did with that project was that the researchers were paid for their time, just as other professionals would be paid. Why was that important to pay the youth researchers? It's straightforward for me to say, but some people may not realize it. It's because where they're from. <laughs> It's not your typical researcher. It's unfortunately, and I'm going to be blunt because this is a space where you have to be truthful. They were dropout high schoolers. They were involved in criminal activity. They were trying to make a difference with their own lives. And this is a great start. But if you weren't going to give them any monetary reward for doing this, it's silly because they don't, they, a lot of them couldn't even get jobs because of their background. So this is something that would help them further in the future with employment. And it did actually with some of them. So it's where they're from. Like for us, we can use that as experience to put on our resume that we'll get a better paying job in the future. Like that's just what we have as us as privileged people, but they need it because of where they're from. Yeah. One of the things that I remember so vividly from that research was how clearly it came out and what they said afterwards when we were debriefing about how they wanted to help their community and they would do this research now without being paid because they knew what it was about, but that they would say, you know, full disclosure, education is not the most important thing in my life. I have to prioritize other things. I have to give money to my family. We have to get food on the table. And I, as a 16 year old have, have responsibilities. So when we're thinking about creating models for youth to be involved in peace building, we also got to recognize that young people make choices about how they spend their time based on what they need to do to survive, to hopefully thrive. But in a lot of cases to survive, they're making choices based on what they can afford to do. Cambria. 
Can you come back in now and talk a little bit about the model that you see playing out with the United Network of Young Peacebuilders and with the journal? Just describe that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So the United Network of Young Peacebuilders, in order to commemorate the fifth anniversary of the Youth Peace and Security Resolution 2250, they created a youth peace and security research network that brought together a group of young people from all over the world, several different countries, and centered their voices on research. And so each individual had the opportunity to choose a research topic and publish it in this journal. And so it was really unique because young people got to be a part of the knowledge creation process and also to be critical of this resolution that was written about us. And so I wrote my piece called The Climate Crisis is a Form of Violence Against Young People, where I basically explain how often when the United Nations doesn't accept the hard truth about the devastating impact of the climate crisis, they're doing a disservice to us and young people. And so I think it just goes back to the importance of bringing together global networks and these international exchanges as such an important part of youth peace building, rather than just thinking that the only place that young people have to learn is within the schools. Great. Thank you. I also want to add, I think, how important being more economically accessible education is. Julio, you're in a master's program now. The Kroc Institute at, at Notre Dame has a wonderful master's program in peace building that brings young people from around the world together in conversations. And that's something you've been doing too, Cambria, right? Is that these connections, so there's the intergenerational connections that are so important. And then there's the transnational connections with people in other countries, young people in other countries, sharing ideas, sharing models, sharing learning and learning together and creating together. I believe that one of the most critical pillars in youth peace building is the importance of intergenerational peace building because so many young people have already been leaders in advocacy and activism and have created youth-led organizations and are working towards goals of peace building. And yet older generations maybe are the ones in power or key stakeholders, whatever seat they may hold. And I think without intergenerational communication and intergenerational collaboration, we're going to find ourselves at, at this crossroads where we lose out on the opportunity to get so much more peace building done. So one very important pillar in youth peace building that I'd like to reiterate is intergenerational peace building. Nice. Julio, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask you a question about the stereotyping of youth. So one of the pervasive ways in which young people are stereotyped is as dangers or risks. And of course, we know this is often a stereotype that's more attributed to young people of color. What has been your experience of that as a young person of color? Do you feel like you were stereotyped as a danger and a risk? And then what can we do about it now that you're no longer, quote unquote, a young person? Well, you're still, you're 25. What can we do about the stereotyping of youth? So I definitely, you know me, I get very emotional. Dr. McAvoy about this question. But when I was working with Courageous Jamerson and Trinity, 
and a few other young people in the Butler Tarkenton community. I was 20, 21, a few years out of high school. So I think the reason that we succeeded in our findings was because I was in their positions before. And I would stress to them so many times that I don't know how I got into Butler University. I don't know to this day how I'm at Loyola Law, considering the things that I've gone through. And yeah, it just doesn't make sense sometimes. And I would acknowledge that with the young people that I worked with. And if you see them in hindsight, now that I think about it, they are intimidating because of society and the norms. Inner city, young black teenagers. And yeah, like I mentioned, norms just declare them as dangerous and unapproachable and unworkable in terms of uh, scholarship work. So I always stress that. And with them, that ended up being a bond. Fidelity, we worked day and night. And that's another thing. That's why we pay them too, because they worked so much with us and they were grateful for that to work and to get paid. But yeah, when it comes to stereotypes, I think the most important thing to do first is to create that bond, to actually listen to them, because where I'm from, I was stereotypical, not they were dangerous, that they may be conflict between them and I because of gangs. And I'll be truthful, like you don't know what set you're from, and you sometimes have to inquire, and that may offend someone even to this day. If I'm 25, that may offend someone if that used to be where I was from, what block I was from. They may get offended, but the most important thing to do to kill those stereotypes, to kill that fear is to actually talk to them. And when I say talk, it's not you saying everything, it's you listening. Have a mutual conversation, understand their interests, where they want to go, what do they find interesting, and don't go down there as a scholar, go down there as a human being and have conversations. And that's why, like I said, I think our scholarship was so profound because I didn't go down there as a researcher with researcher lens. I went down there as a person that was in their position before, and I just had open dialogues. I didn't go up there and say, so what do you think about research? What do you think? I just went down there and we were just boys being boys and we talked and we, we then decided like, let's do this research. Let's make a difference in this community. So yeah, I think those stereotypes can be killed by just listening. And it's hard to say because with societal norms, but it's as easy as just listening. Thank you. That's really great. It reminds me, you're underlining this really important point about the relational aspect of peace building. Peace building starts with relationships, but also that has to be sustained, right? You don't just go down there to a youth center and try to interview people for an afternoon, or you don't fly into a foreign country and spend a week trying to interview people and then come back and write your book, right? That it takes time and commitment, building trust, sustained relationships, if you're going to actually do ethical work that makes a difference. Cambria, would you like to talk a little bit about your own upbringing and how that shaped your interest in peace building and whether or not you ever felt as if you were stereotyped as at risk or dangerous and how that might have shaped your outlook on thinking about young people and their work for peace? Yeah. So growing up in a low-income Palestinian immigrant family, discussing 
large scale conflict was very commonplace in my home, very commonplace at my dinner table. But really, it wasn't until I got to college and I was given the opportunity to study peace building, join peace lab think tanks and discuss with different diverse groups and opinions that I really, I think, realized the true importance of peace building. I think I knew a lot of the experiences, but I didn't necessarily have the language to explain all these things that I maybe already knew. And if not empowered as a young person, I quite frankly may have gone my whole life without an outlet for peace building and change. And so I think my background has showed me that all of us have some sort of connection to conflict. All of us have some sort of connection to peace building. It's just a matter of if we're able to find the right outlets, able to find the right organizations, communities to empower us in that because I truthfully believe that everybody has the potential to be a peace builder. And I believe that the time for change is now. It's a matter of if we as a world, as a society, as individuals in academia, as individuals in nonprofits and business can get behind young people, get behind the silenced voices and empower them to kind of lean into their experiences and lean into their peace building abilities. Great. Thank you. Okay. So to wrap up, what would you like to see happen with this piece that we wrote, the peace policy piece on youth and sustainable peace building? What's your hope for that? Cambria. My hope would be that everyone sees the potential of youth voices. And on top of seeing the potential that everybody sees the importance of and the critical need for youth voices. I would say to young people too, remember that your voice has value. And I would say to individuals from other generations that remember that these young people are going to be inheriting the world. And remember that by incorporating them into the conversation, you can you can support them in building the world that we all want to create. And I think that is the key to sustainable peace building. Great. Julio, what would you like people to take away from this piece that we wrote? So at times, because of my background, I get uncomfortable with these types of meetings because I've never been used to them and they're so structured. So retrospectively thinking about what I've just said, I think that young people, when they receive and they ought to receive agency is that it doesn't have to be so this way, that way, let's have it this way or that way. And it's led by adult people. I think they need to be free flowing, open-minded and have them comfortable while they speak. So in a perfect world, when discussing crime, let's say inner city, it should be that the young people that are impacted and are doing the wrongdoing, that they have the conversation and it's open-minded and it's an open flow and the conversations can go wherever it goes and then work from that. So I think it's hard. It's very hard. I'm uncomfortable now because it's so difficult and it sounds silly because I'm in law school and it needs to change, but it's just where I'm from. It's, if you say one thing in slang or you word it differently and they don't understand the adult people, the people that are scholars, you may feel uncomfortable and you just, you want to be your truthful self. Like if I was really being my truthful self right now, I would 
honestly, possibly speaking in vulgar, to really show the stress, the emotion, and to have something change because I'm being truthful. And I think when it comes to young people, we want to shape them and we want them to say certain things because that's what we think is right. But we don't know nothing about that because a lot of us haven't been in those positions. So let them be true. Let them be emotional. Let them raise things that we find silly because it might not be because we've never been in those positions. Great. Thank you. Building on that, I would add that we can't wait. One of the things that I would like people to take away from this conversation and from the, the piece we wrote together is that we can't wait until a small number of young people are credentialized as peace scholars or lawyers or, you know, the leaders of think tanks and organizations and have become a new elite, right? We cannot wait until that happens to listen to what young people have experienced because then we're getting it second, third hand, right? We need to find ways to open spaces for conversation that are creative and honest and vulnerable, take time for all young people who want to be part of the conversation. And I'm hoping that people will take away from the piece, not that we have any particular magic formula in the peace lab or not that UNOY or CROC has some magic formula, but that there is this need to be ever more creative in developing the kinds of spaces where young people will be invited, respected, and feel enthusiastic about contributing because their voices matter and change is happening and they can see that change and it's tangible. Thank you, Cambria and Julio. You did a fantastic job. Thanks to each one of you for joining this conversation today. For those of you listening, we would invite you to check out the full peace policy issue at peacepolicy.nd.edu. You've been listening to the CROCcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's CROC Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CROCcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.